That's what we need, Lord. We need some miracles to happen. And we thank you because they're on the way. Please stand with me, if you will, everybody. Today we are going to be reading from God's Word. And it's today we're reading the NIV. That stands for Necessary in Vegas. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Father, anoint your word and let it like an arrow come and pierce every one of our hearts and souls. We love you and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you're seated. Rich Guerra needs no introduction to this fellowship. He is the reason why Pam and I are here. He and Connie brought us here back in 1990, and then after almost five years, the Southern California District said, Rich, come back, we need your leadership. He's now leading over 500 churches in the Southern California District, and he recently was promoted. He is now in charge of nine districts in the Southwest region. I love this man with all of my heart. He's closer than a brother to me. Please welcome Pastor... Amen. Rich, thank you, brother. Amen. Thank you, friend. Amen. How many love Jesus? Raise your hand. <laughs> I love Jesus, and I love this church, and I love Pastor Randy and Pam, Pastor Vic, and all the people that are here. Thirty-two years ago, this church gave a thirty-four-year-old guy who had never pastored before. A chance. And uh, I see Red and Floretta, Red was on the board then, that they decided to give me a chance. And you need to understand, coming 32 years ago, I was told by many, don't come here, because in those days that the church had lost all its young people. That Trinity had a vision of planting churches through Las Vegas, and so they would send young staff and young families to the newly built areas of Vegas and they would go and it became the old Assembly of God Church and they said it's not going to make it. Matter of fact, when they introduced Connie, my wife, my prime rib of 43 years is here with me and as uh, we stood on this platform where our three youngest, where our three children, we were the youngest family in the church and I said, God, Why? Why bring me to a church they told me not to come to because it was dying? But let me tell you, God gave me a vision that there needed to be a church in the city to reach the needs of people in the city. And after 32 years, Trinity is still here, a light into this city. And I can't tell you how proud I am of your pastor, Pastor Randy, my best friend. He, when I said, they asked me to come, I said, Randy, come with me. It'd be harder to kill two guys than one. So uh, all I ever wanted to do was pastor one church for 30 years. 
I've lasted five, he's lasted 25 years. He's living my dream. I'm a little angry at God about that. But I'm so thankful for what God has done through him. And as we walked around yesterday and saw the impact center and the health center and the feeding program, that's why we changed the name from Trinity Temple to Trinity Life Center that we believe this was going to be the center of people's lives. Let me tell you, I travel for a living. I'm in a different Assembly of God church every Sunday. And I can tell you that today, that God has a purpose for bringing churches to the city. You need to understand that you belong to a great fellowship. Turn to your neighbor and say, I, I belong to a big family. Will you tell him that? I belong to a big family. I know what you're saying, Pastor Rich, I didn't eat today. I know I belong to a big family. No, no, you belong to a family called the Assemblies of God. That in 1914, 300 people gathered in Hot Springs, Arkansas, because they had been filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, and they said, we declare we will be the greatest soul-winning organization the world has ever known. So those 300 today, right now, this day, number 70 million around the world. Our missionaries tell us every 65 seconds, someone is giving their life to Jesus Christ in an Assembly of God church. And I'm so thankful for churches like yours as we begin this missions conference here that, men, you pray for missionaries, you support missionaries. God is doing fabulous things around the world. Oh, I just came back on Monday from Egypt. They've asked us to come. These last several years, I've been in Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, and now Egypt. Egypt is a population of over 102 million people. Less than 2% are born-again Christians. They've asked us to come, and what we do is we come, and we brought 20,000 clean water filters. Why? Because 80% of the country of Egypt does not have access to clean water, and the number one death of children around the world is lack of clean water. So we come and bring them these water filters. Oh, I wish you could have been with me. As we're preaching in churches that are packed of former Muslims that have come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they took me to their homes where now they have access to clean water. They wouldn't let go of my hand. They said our children were dying. We were sick. But now we have water. But we can say, well, you, now you have living water. You have water, you'll never thirst again. They've asked this Vic to help them plant 2,300 churches through the country of Egypt. And it's because of churches like yours that is making it happen. God is moving around the world like never before. That's the good news. But of these 70 million people that are attending church around the world in Assembly of God churches, 67 million of them live overseas. And less than 3 million live in the United States of America. That the United States of America has become the third most lost nation in the world behind China and India. How can that be? A nation that God has blessed. A nation that sent missionaries around the world and are reaching people and now is lost. I'm so thankful for Chi Alpha. Chi Alpha is one of the great international ministries of the, of the country today. More of our world missionaries are coming out of Chi Alpha because they are seeing God move on college campuses of all different races and nationalities and cultures. But America's lost. I'm just going to tell you. They, ask, they estimate that every year anywhere from 4,000 to 8,000 churches will close its doors forever. How many believe that Trinity Life Center will no longer be a church? This will be bulldozed down or will be a Buddhist mosque. How many believe it will no longer exist? You don't believe that, do you? Well, neither of those 4,000, 8,000 churches. I travel. I go to cities. I drove around. Yesterday with Pastor Randy. And I just had to hold back the tears. Because you pass church after church after church. There's a church on every other corner. How can America be so lost? Because many of those churches are empty. Many of them stop preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, I'm humbled to be here today. I, I'm always amazed when people introduce me because I come from a place called Pacoima, California. How many have ever heard of Pacoima? Anybody? 
Well, how many have ever been to Bacoima? Anybody? And you're still alive. <laughs> that is a miracle because Bacoima is a rough place. How rough, Pastor Vic? I'm glad you asked me. Legend has it that these four guys were driving in Bacoima. Well, that's not true. You don't drive in Bacoima. You cruise in Bacoima. So they were cruising in Bacoima, and a car overturned, and the four guys were killed. When they opened their eyes, they're standing in front of the pearly gates met by St. Peter. I did say this was a legend, right? And Peter says, what can I do for you, gentlemen? They say, hey, we're from Bacoima. We like to come in. And Peter says, we don't have anyone from Bacoima here in heaven. I'm going to have to talk to Jesus about this, Bob. And, and so they go and talk to Jesus. And Jesus says, we don't have any guys from Pacoima here. Peter, go get those guys and bring them in. A few minutes later, Peter running back to the Lord. Lord, they're gone. He said, what, the guys from Pacoima? No, the gates. Kind of reminds me of Vegas, huh? <laughs> you got to be from Bacoima to tell that story, and I am from Bacoima. And there in the San Fernando Valley, my grandpa, who is an immigrant from Mexico, comes to, comes to America to, to help his children. He'll find, he finds Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. In a tent crusade, he's delivered instantly from alcohol. And called to be a minister of the gospel. And the same night, he said to his wife, God's called us to preach. He didn't have a church. Across the street from his house, Vic, was a condemned dance hall. He buys it and turns it into a Pentecostal church. At the age of five years old, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know why I waited so long. But at five years old, I said, I'm going to get serious about this. So I don't have a testimony to overcome drugs. I've never taken a drug. I can't tell you how to be delivered from alcohol because, it, well, that's not true. Every once in a while, I'll take a shot at NyQuil. We call that Pentecostal whiskey in our house. But that's the, that's the strongest drink I've ever had. I never got in trouble with the law. Well, what can you tell me? I can say that the promises of God are real. That the saving power of Jesus can keep you all the days of your life. But from this humble Mexican immigrant who stand behind the pulpit, I said, God, I want to be like that man. I want to know you the way he knows you. I want to love people the way that he loves you. All I've ever known is Jesus. And all I've ever cared about is seeing lost people come to Jesus. That's why you're here today. We live in a lost world. We live in a lost nation. And what are you going to do about it? You know, they still say everyone's leaving the city. You know, everyone's moving out to the suburbs. Everyone leaving the, in, in California, everyone's leaving California. You know, they, they keep telling me, Rich, you still live in California? I say, oh yeah, I live in California. They go, why are you living in California? I said, well, can they say why? Because, because California's going to hell. That's what the guy told me. I said, well, oh, yeah, California's going to hell. I said, you know that verse in the gates of hell? She'll not, that's California. That's where the gates of hell are. You can leave, go to the suburbs, abandon the city, if that's your choice, an easier life, a safer life, but you forget. I did a little study. Five miles around this church, just five miles around this church live 507, 850,000 people. 508,000 people live within five miles of this church. Five miles. A half a million people live within five miles of this church. Now, study tells us that of these 508,000 people, 20% say they come to church. 20%. Now, they might just show up for Easter or Christmas, but they think they're churchgoers. When I pastor, I had a guy come to me one time and say, Pastor, every time I come to church, you preach the same message. I said, because you only come at Christmas time, that's why. <laughs> you come another time, you hear another message. 20% say they come to church. Of the 508,000, listen to me, that is five miles. Some of you drove more than five miles to get here today. You crossed a, mil a half a million people to get to church today. 20% have stopped coming to church. How many know people used to come to church if stopped coming to church? Come on, raise your hand. 
Someone said something, someone did something, we're a bunch of hypocrites, whatever, you know. That lady in my church said to me one time, he said, Pastor, every time I come to church, this lady gives me a dirty look. I said, what? Well, she gives me a dirty look. I said, sister, that's just the way she looks. (laughs) Everyone has an excuse why they stop coming to church, right? 20% say they come. 20% have stopped coming. But listen to me. This is why the church in America is dying. That 60% of that 508,000 people that live just five miles from this church have never been to church a day in their life. They didn't have Christian parents like I did or Christian grandpa like I had. And the number one reason they say they've not been to church, listen to me, is because they've never been invited to church. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many of you invited people to church? But how many of you invited people over to a Super Bowl party? We just don't invite people. And they're all around us. And they're hurting. They're lost. We drove by and saw people living on park benches, prostituting, just a, a, throw, a stone throw from this building. Who's going to reach them if you don't? A third of the world's population, 7.5 billion people have never heard the name Jesus. Who's going to reach them? Pastor, it's impossible. How can we reach 500,000 people? How can we reach, you know, a third of the world's population? How many believe it takes a miracle? Right? It's going to take a miracle. I always believed that this church would eradicate hunger. It would rescue children. <laughs> it would educate. It would, it would give single parents hope. It would house elderly Man, we just believed that this was going to be the center of life, that they knew they could come to Trinity Life Center and find life. We just believed that. We were just foolish enough. Why? Because we knew it would take a miracle. I have enough time to tell you the miracle, how we got that building. We couldn't afford it. The owner said he'd burn in hell before he sold it to us. I don't know, I don't know where he is today, but... <laughs> It takes a miracle. Maybe today you need a miracle. Maybe you need a miracle in your marriage. You need a miracle with your children. You need a miracle in your finances. Maybe this week the doctor gave you some bad news that today you need a miracle. The story you just read is the most famous miracle in the Bible. The reason is it is written by both Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only miracle all four gospel writers walk talk about and it's the it's the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 where it really wasn't 5,000 that was just the men and these Hebrew men were probably like like Mexican men they probably had a dozen kids right and so it's really the feeding of the the 25,000 at least right they were married they had kids they only counted the men and in this story we see this great principle that's going to have this church reach this city for Jesus and for us to reach the people around the world. I wish you could have gone with me to Egypt. As they took me, these churches that were packed with ex-Muslims that have come to know Jesus Christ, they took me by the hand and they would take me to their little hut, village, just show me the clean water filter. They wouldn't let go of my hand. They kept saying, thank you. We can make a difference. But how we make a difference is that when there is a need, when there is a need seen by a few and everyone does what he or she can do with what he and she has, Then, only then, God can do a miracle. That's what the story tells us. That's what's going to win our cities. That's what's going to get the gospel. That if you need a miracle today, you're not going to receive it unless you look for a miracle. People come to church in need, come to church, need a miracle, and leave 
in the same condition that they came because they're not looking for the miracle. They've given up. This is just the way it is. It's always going to be this way. You know, America's going to hell, whatever. You're not going to get a miracle unless you look for the miracle. To help you remember how to look to the miracle, this story, and it starts with, you got to locate the problem. Now in our story, we see the problem. It says, when Jesus saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, they said. And it is already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. There's a problem, right? Big crowd of people. They're in a remote place and they're all hungry. A miracle begins when you first locate the problem. Let me tell you, miracle can begin when you locate the problem. If you don't think there's a problem in your marriage, then you can't get a miracle. If you don't think there's a problem with your kids, you're not going to get a miracle. If you don't think you have a problem financially or emotionally, then you can't have a miracle. You first have to locate the problem. The problem was obvious. You have to locate the problem. Let's be honest. We got problems. This city has problems. America has problems. A third of the world has problems. You've got to locate the problem. But our story isn't there. One thing to locate the problem. We know there's problems. Hunger, homelessness. It's all around us. Second... Not only to locate the problem, you got to own up to the problem. Notice our story. It says in verse 35, by this time it was late in the day. So the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. And it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. you got to own up to the problem. There wasn't a miracle until the disciples took responsibility for the problem. Well, let me ask you a question. Who knew that the people were hungry first, the disciples or Jesus? Huh? Not a quick, that's not a trick question, right? Don't you think Jesus knew they were hungry? Yeah. But he waited to do the miracle until the disciples owned up to the problem. We can complain all we want about the government, about agencies, about, but until the church of Jesus Christ owns up to the problem and say, Vic, we're going to do something about this. We're not going to leave it up to anyone. We're going to own up to the problem. Once the disciples owned up to the problem, Jesus then could do something about it. Notice it says in John 6, 6, Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus knew there was a problem. He already knew, but he was waiting for them because Jesus did nothing about the problem until the disciples got concerned. Our friend who's going to the college campus, we could say the campuses are lost, but she's owned up to the problem. It's not someone else's job. It's her job. It's not someone else's job. See, there's enough people in this room to reach all Las Vegas for Jesus Christ. Jesus had 12. Matter of fact, he had 11. One guy flaked out on him. There's enough people, but not everyone is owning up to the problem. Taking responsibility. You know, if maybe you have a problem in your marriage today, until you recognize it and own up to say it's not just her fault, Don't look at her. Keep looking at me. (laughs) Not just his fault. It's my fault. It's my fault that my kids are in the condition that they're in. I need to do something about this. You've got to own up to the problem. You see that God saw you financially long before you saw it. But the question is, are you going to own up to the problem? And notice what... Here, the disciples saw the need and finally came to Jesus and said, Jesus, do something about the problem. There are 5,000 hungry people. And notice his response in verse 37. But Jesus answered him, you give them something to eat. Now, what kind of response is that? These are poor disciples. How are the disciples going to feed 5,000 people? Even if they had the hamburger meat to make 5,000 tacos... They couldn't do it. Why does God tell them, you do it? Why? Because God was wanting to give them an assignment that was impossible. 
How are we going to alleviate poverty in Vegas? How are we going to alleviate sex trafficking in Vegas? How are we going to alleviate abuse in Vegas? It's going to be impossible without God. If we could do it without God, we've already done it. It's going to take a miracle. God often asks us to do the impossible. Why? Because we can't do it on our own strength. We have to rely on his strength. He says, do give them something to eat. They said, God, this is impossible. Notice in verse 37. So he said to them, that would take eight months, the disciples told Jesus. Of a man's wages, and we're to go spend that much on bread and give it them to eat? Lord, we can't afford this. We don't have the money. It's amazing that God often asks us to do something that's impossible. He says, you feed them. You reach the people in this five-mile radius. You help these children, these single families, these, this abuse. You do it because... You're going to have to take responsibility for what he's asked you to do. Why? Because to do the impossible takes faith. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please God. It's going to take great faith to reach Las Vegas. It's going to take great faith to reach this world for God. It's going to take faith. Why don't we do it? Why don't we have the faith to believe our family can be saved? Why don't we have faith that this city can be transformed by the church? Why don't we have faith? I, there, there are three reasons. There are three reasons that we have. It's the same, the three reasons disciples have. Notice the story. Number one, we procrastinate. Notice what it says again. By this time, it was late in the day. The, the, listen, the disciples finally realized they were hungry late in the day. What about a breakfast time? Didn't they think they were hungry at breakfast time? Or lunchtime, they waited till late in the day because they procrastinated. We procrastinate. We say someone else will pay the bills. Someone else will buy the buildings. Someone else will usher. Someone else will work with children. Someone else will do it. We procrastinate. They procrastinated, even though it was right in front of them. When is this city going to change? When is this community going to change? When are you going to finish the projects that you need finished out there? Are we going to just procrastinate and say someone else can do it? Not only do we procrastinate, we pass the buck. Notice what the disciples say. They actually tell Jesus in verse 36, send the people away. Send them away. It's not our problem, Jesus. That's their fault. No one asked them to come. No one asked them to come listen to you all day. You know, it's their fault that they're hungry. It's not, it's not our problem. It's not my problem that the, 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 the teenage suicide rate is up, that drug addiction is up, that people are, are killing themselves. On the, it's not my problem, Lord. I didn't, I didn't ask him to do that. It's none of my business. So the disciples said, we procrastinate, we pass the buck, or we worry about it. It's, everything's getting worse, so we just worry about it. Notice what it says in verse 37. So they said to the Lord, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? There's always an accountant in the room. We can't afford that building. Bob, when we were here, we, we can't afford that building. It, what if? What if, Lord? What if, you know, who's going to afford those, that food? Who, no, who's going to clean up the trash? Who's going to get the, the, the health permit? Who's going who, to, who, what if, what if? We always question it. We worry about it. The funny thing is they're worried about, you know, work. They're worried about how they're going to feed them. And they're looking for Colonel Sanders. But the man who turned bread and, stone into bread is standing right in front of them. We worry. Maybe me stop worrying and start doing something. Locate the problem. Own up to the problem. And then thirdly, only do your best. God isn't asking you to do what you can't do. Oh, God, I'd love to give, but I can't. No, I don't, I don't have a million dollars. No, you're not, God ain't asking for your million dollars. He's asking you to do your best. Let's just be real honest. Are we all doing our best? With our time, our talent, our time? Are we doing our best? 
That's all. Notice the story. In verse 38, it says, And how many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. And they found out, and they said, Five and two fish. Now listen to this story. It's incredible. It's incredible. That there are 5,000 men, probably 20, 25,000 people. They searched the whole crowd. And the hero of the story is a little boy with a glad bag lunch. The only person that brought something to eat is a little boy. His mom probably fixed his little afternoon lunch, two barley loaves, which was beggar's bread, and five fish were probably sardines. That's all they had. And notice what the little boy does. First, he gave God what he had. God doesn't ask us to give what we don't have. Oh, God, you know, I'd give you, I'd give you a million dollars if I win, the, you know, the Caesar Palace jackpot. God ain't asking for the Caesar ja- Caesar's Palace jackpot. He's asking you to give what you got. What do you have? All this boy had was five loaves and two fish. God isn't looking for ability. He's looking for availability. He's looking at what you have, your time, your talent. What do, you, what do you have to give? I love the story. It's maybe my testimony in 1 Corinthians in 126. It says, for God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That word foolish is the word moral, so we get the word morons, that God has chosen the morons, Pastor Vic, to confound the wise, and there's hope for me today (laughs) if I'll give what I have. But notice the second thing, he gave all that he had. He didn't have to go pray about it. He'd say, well, uh, Lord, let me go pray about what I'm going to have to give you today. No, there's no prayer. There's a need. You have it. What are you going to do about it? He never hesitated. He gave all that he had. He didn't tithe off his lunch. He didn't give God a tenth of the bread or a tenth of the fish. He gave what he had. He gave all that he had. And finally, what you're going to be asked to do today, he gave it immediately when God asked for it. He gave it immediately. God has already asked you to do something. And you say, God, not today. God still loves you. But the blessing that was yours is now going to be someone else who said yes. How many in that crowd hid their lunch because they didn't want to share it? But this little boy gave it immediately. He gave God immediately. Why don't we do that? We are worried that we might end up going hungry. He could have said, Lord, I only have like two breads and five fish. How's I going to help 5,000 people? If I give it, I'm going to go hungry. If you give what God has asked you to give, the enemy is saying, how are you going to make it, friend? How are you going to survive if you give to reach people for Jesus? That boy could have said the same thing, or he could have said, Lord, how can my little bed help? Little bit can make a difference. Notice in verse 9 of John 6, and here is the little boy with five loaves of bread and two small fish. But how are they going to feed so many, Andrew says. Lord, it's all we collected. How is this going to feed this crowd? You know, and once again, if there is a need, sensed by a few, and everyone does what he or she can do with what she or she has, then and only then, a miracle could happen. So Jesus takes his five fish and these two, the five loaves of bread and these two fishes, and he takes them and it says, after giving thanks, he broke it and he blessed it. Jesus always takes our life Then he breaks our life so he can bless our life. Some of you refuse to be broken today. You refuse to give God what you have. Lord, I give you, I ain't getting up this girlfriend, Lord. I've worked too hard to get a girlfriend. I ain't going to give her up now. 
I can't give up Lord, all that I have. How am I going to make it? Lord, as soon as the kids move out of the house and stop eating me out of house and home, then I'm going to start giving. Or are you going to give immediately? And he took the bread. And I don't know how, how it works, but he broke it. And it's like as he broke it, the bread came back. He broke it again, and he broke it again, and he broke it. And it says that uh, he took this bread, and they located the problem. They owned up to the problem, the disciples. They only did their best. And then finally, you've got to keep your faith in God. The story ends in verse 39. It says, and when Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on green grass, so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke it. Every communion, we take the bread and we break it. And then he gave them to the disciples that sat before the people he also divided the two fish among them, and they all ate, and notice these words, and were satisfied. <laughs> they were satisfied. I love that word. They were satisfied. Are you going to be leaving here satisfied, or are you going to leave here wanting? Because you didn't give God what you had. You didn't give him all that you had, and you didn't do it today. They lived satisfied. Matter of fact, it says that after they had fed everyone, they were sat. They couldn't eat anymore. Man, they were like taking naps on the hillside. They were so full. There were still twelve baskets of of food left over. I've often wondered what he did with those twelve baskets. I can picture that he calls a little boy. He says, "Son, come here." And he gives him these 12 baskets. Because of your gift, here, take this home. So he goes home with these 12 baskets. And his mom says, Junior, where did you get those baskets? He said, Mom, you ain't gonna believe this. That man, I gave, this man named Jesus was wanting to feed everyone. And they came around and I gave up my little lunch. And now we have 12 baskets of food. He's the hero of the story, and so can you. I don't know if you were raised in a Mexican home, or someday you'd like to be raised in a Mexican home. <laughs> I was raised in a Mexican home. And if you were raised in a Mexican home like I was, every Friday night you'd have dinner with grandma and grandpa, grandma and grandpa, which my grandpa was my hero. As I told you, I, he was pastor of the church, I got saved under him. Wanted to be like him. And so it was always a treat to go have dinner with grandpa and grandma. And I remember I was seven years old and we go and we couldn't go through the front door of my grandpa's house because that was the living room. And there was always a line of people lined up on the porch waiting for him to pray for. Remind me of just coming from Egypt. We asked, does anyone need prayer? They lined up from here to outside that door. And they would grab my hand, these people, and make me place it on their forehead, actually believing that God could do a miracle in their life. I don't know. I don't remember the last American church. I had people get my hand and put it. And have, they usually take my hand because they're afraid I'm going to go after their wallet is what the problem in the American church is. <laughs> So we couldn't go through the front door. We had to go through the back door. And then the back door, it was the kitchen. And my grandma was in the kitchen. She was always in the kitchen. She lived in the kitchen. And she was always cooking in the kitchen. I can still, I can still smell the beans and tortillas. I'm hungry. I don't know where we're going. Randy, I hope it's beans and tortillas. I'm just, I can just smell it now. And so I say to my grandma, who didn't speak much English, I said, Grandma, Where's grandpa? She said, mijo, he's in the shed. I said, is he fixing bikes? I'm seven years old. He would find broken down bikes and fix them and give them to kids in the neighborhood who couldn't afford a bike. 
That was the kind of man he was. She didn't know me when he ain't fixing bikes. He's praying. I said, Grandma, how long has he been praying for? She said, Mijo, he's been praying for three days, locked in a shed, praying to God. As a young boy of seven, I pressed my ear to the door of the shed and I heard a man pray like I never heard before. We'd take my grandpa out to lunch sometimes to restaurants. He'd make everyone in the restaurant bow their head. Yeah, that's the kind of man. You know, now I look around, people don't even pray for their food. You know, I look around and people don't even, you know, they, even, even pigs grunt before they eat. Come on. But my grandpa started every prayer the same way. It went something like this. Bendito Padre, Santo de Cielo Eterno, Padre Mio. And I knew the man on the other side of that shed door had a direct line to God. He begins to pray for his nine children by name. It had 11, but two had died at birth. Begins to pray for their spouses. Then he begins to pray for every one of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren by name. And as he's praying, he mentions my name. He says, dear great God in heaven, use my grandson to be a preacher of the gospel. <laughs> but you sent him around the world to preach your word. I've been in almost every country in the world, Bob. Because at seven years old, I knew what I was going to do the rest of my life. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I wish I had a grandpa like that. Well, friend, today, if you'll put your ear up to heaven's shed door, you can hear your heavenly father call out your name. Today, today, you can be forgiven of your sin. Today, you can be set free from what binds you. It doesn't have to be drug or alcohol. It could be unforgiveness and bitterness. Today, you can have new purpose and meaning in your life. Today, but will you give God what you have? He can't take leftovers. He gave all he had for you. You've got to give what you have. You've got to give all that you have. And you got to do it immediately. You have a pledge card. And we call it a faith promise pledge because no one's going to come up and collect it from you. It's between you and God. A few years ago, I was invited to Lebanon because five million Syrian refugees had to leave that country. Most of them single mothers because their husbands were killed in the war, much like Ukraine today. Three million Ukrainians have fled Ukraine. Most of them are mothers with small children. They say every minute, 55 children leave Ukraine. Most of them orphans or just having a mother. I'm sitting in this refugee, I'm standing in this refugee camp in Lebanon. 90,000 refugees. The average stay of a refugee in a refugee's camp is eight years. They can't go back home. There's nothing, there's no home left. At that day, they told us, this agency that invited us to come that they were cut from 30 liters of water a day to 15 liters a day. That's about eight gallons to four gallons. To cook, to drink, to bathe. The average American uses 128 gallons a week just to shower. I'm seeing these thousands of children I'm saying, God, this is impossible. He says, that's why I brought you here. <laughs> Today we have fed thousands of children. We've rescued women out of sex trafficking. We have built churches that Afghanis are now coming to Christ because we said, we're gonna do something about it. What are you gonna do today?
You have missionaries around the world that need your support. You have missions projects like helping to reach a Muslim world. More Muslims have come to Christ in the last 10 years than the last 100 years. You have Convoy of Hope is right now on the border of Poland. The Church of Poland have opened their homes to these refugees. And Convoy of Hope is there. Fire Bibles that pastors can now preach an anointed word of God with a fire Bible that has a Pentecostal theology that they can preach. We're providing 23 house churches in Egypt today with men and women who have just gotten saved but want to be pastors. They can now have a fire Bible in their hand training those to reach Jesus Christ on and on what are we going to do about what are we going to do about Las Vegas all he asks is locate the problem own up to the problem only do your best and keep your faith in God a little faith and a big God brings great results let me say that again a little faith in a great God brings great results. What faith do you have today? Would you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, there's so much more I could say because this church means so much to me. Randy and Pam are our closest friends. It would have been so easy for him to leave when another opportunity came. But he had a vision of a church that would make an impact in this city. Think of the thousands of children, the elderly, the poor, the oppressed, that are finding hope because of this church. But God, for it to complete its mission, when there is a need, sensed by a few, and everyone does what he or she can do, what he or she has, then and only then, God can do a miracle. We want God to do something from us, but he waits for, he wants to do something through us. God chooses people to do his miracle through. And he wants to do his miracle through you today as you make this faith promise pledge that over these 12 months that you're gonna sacrificially give to say, God, Somebody's got to do something about this, and I'm going to do it. Maybe today you would say, Pastor Rich, I hear God calling out my name today. Maybe today you need to be forgiven of your sin. That's what's kept you back from God doing a miracle in your life because you've not given him everything. You haven't given him your heart. You haven't asked him to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Today can be that by just saying, Jesus, forgive me. I'm sorry. Maybe you need to be set free from what binds you, what binds your family, what binds your children. You can be set free today. Maybe you need new purpose and vision in your life. This pandemic has ruined your plans, but God has a new plan, a new destiny, if you'll ask him. Right before Pastor Randy comes, I'm gonna wanna pray for you. You'd be so kind to say, Pastor Richard, you pray for me. Just lift up your hand and say, I need Jesus today. I need a miracle in my life. I need a miracle in my family. I need a miracle in my finances. I need a miracle in my body. I need a miracle. Locate that problem. Own up to the problem. And only do your best. Keep your faith in God. Like that little boy, you can say, Mommy, look what God did. <laughs> I've been blessed 12 times over. That's what God wants to do to you today. Would you just lift up your hand so I can pray for you? Come on. Yes. Up in the balcony, come on. He's praying, he's asking, calling your name. Can you hear him? John, Susan, Bill. Today I can forgive you. Today you can be set free. Today you can have new purpose, man. Today is your day. Never did I think it's a seven-year-old boy. I grew up in a Spanish-speaking church. I don't even speak Spanish. That was the least that God could use. But I gave him all that I had. I gave it immediately. And he's multiplied it 12 times over. He can do it to you.
Would you stand to your feet with me? Maybe like this young man, you need to make a stand. You need to make a step. I'm in no hurry. Jesus is in no hurry. That today your marriage is going to be healed. Your kids are going to come back to Jesus. The doctors are going to be wrong because the divine physician is going to touch you today. That this city is going to see revival. That what Jesus said, this gospel shall be preached in all nations and the end comes. I'm foolish enough to believe that. And I've stood on continents that I can see God moving in miraculous way. We can finish the job today if we'll all see the need. And we'll all do something about it. Then God can do a miracle through us. If you need to come. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus. So thankful that 32 years ago, this church gave Connie and I a chance. Thank you that Pastor Randy and Pam came with us. And we're seeing that fulfillment of that dream 32 years later. Thank you for Pastor Vic. When I first met him, he was a doorman at a casino, and I said, Vic, God has called you to be a doorman in the house of God. Now you're using him to introduce people who would never darken a door of a church. Come and find hope. Thank you, God, for Mike and for Jimmy and all those that serve here. Thank you, God, that you're not done with Trail Life Center. You have a plan. So thankful I was just a small part of that plan. And God, I can rejoice. In Jesus' name we pray. You want to come, you come. Our good brother's going to lead us. Randy's going to come and pray. I pray it's not 10 years until you invite me back. I'd love to come back again. Randy's promised to have me come once a year. I'd love to come share with you what God is doing around the world and see what God is doing here in Las Vegas. God bless you. We love you. Thank you.